Welcome to episode 63. Today, Dr. Esther Dejon joins us to talk about the foundational principles of multilingual education. Welcome to the Empowering Elves podcast. I'm Tan Nguyen, and the goal of this podcast is to serve language learners just like me and to empower passionate teachers just like you. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has. If you're like me, you might be a language specialist. Though I speak multiple languages, I am not a licensed bilingual educator. I am only vaguely familiar with my multilingual educator's responsibilities. However, I have come to realize that we have much in common. That's why I've invited Dr. Esther Dion onto the podcast to share the principles of multilingual education. Through this conversation, I've come to realize that both language specialists and multilingual educators answer the same calling, to provide equitable learning experiences. Now, on to today's podcast. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Dejon, Esther Dejon, I said it right. You did. Uh, I practiced. Uh, she is the director of the School of Education at the University of Florida. And we're so excited because you were also uh, the president, the former president of TISO International, which is a very recognized and uh, respected organization in our field. So before I go more into uh, the podcast, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to the community. Okay, well, thanks for having me. This is very exciting. Um, so I'm Esther de Jong and I am uh, from the Netherlands originally. We just chatted about that. I grew up there. Um, in fact, did my master's there and um, got interested in linguistics and, and social linguistics and education. And as part of that program, I had to do an internship and decided that um, I would like to do that outside of the Netherlands and ended up at the Massachusetts Department of Education of all places, where I was introduced to a very special bilingual education program called two-way immersion programs. So it's bilingual programs where you have native speakers of both languages learning together and becoming bilingual and and biliterate. Um, I had such a good time that I decided to stay and I did my doctoral work at Boston University. And um, after I graduated, I realized I need a lot more experience in the school system. So I, this, I was the assistant director for bilingual education for the Framingham Public Schools in Massachusetts. Wow. I did that for five years. And then I switched over and went uh, into academia here at the University of Florida in 2001, where um, I was where I am still part of uh, both teacher preparation for mainstream teachers, so general education teachers, as well as um, specialist English as a second language teachers. Um, and we have a very strong doctoral program as well. A couple of years back, I decided to move into administration. So in addition to being a professor, I'm also the director for the School of Teaching and Learning, which is fantastic because it allows me to see elementary and secondary education, 
the STEM fields, literacy, and everything that is connected to that in addition to ESOL. And so it all gets connected in the end. And that's where I am right now. Um, we're uh, dealing with all of those programs still moving forward, despite the fact that we're in the COVID-19 era. Yes, we are. Uh, teachers have been doing such a fabulous job, in, including professors who are thinking about how can we serve, how can we pair teachers to for this kind of environment. And I, I would also say that professors like you at this level are helping the groom and prepare the new generation of teachers to work with language learners. So we definitely need your part of the system and your part of uh, the solution and the movement. So you talked about uh, working and falling in love with bilingual education. So that's really, that's a seed. I hear a seed of a story there. Would you tell us a story about a, a particular time when you, when you worked with a student or a colleague or a parent in the bilingual world and you said, oh, yes, this is why we do this. This is, uh, that encap it, the story encapsulate, encapsulates something really important about bilingual education. Can you share a story about that? You know, there's lots of stories to tell um, around that. I tell you one that's actually not related to bilingual education, but it's related to a cross-age tutoring program um, that was run by one of my colleagues, um, Candace Harper. They had a cross-age tutoring program between elementary and middle school students. And here in Gainesville, most of the classes that we have are English as a second language classes. We don't have bilingual education here. Yes. Um, but the tutoring program tried to match students based on their language backgrounds. And I will never forget that when we saw where we were looking at the elementary students and then the middle schoolers would come and then the middle schoolers would actually greet their tutees in their native language. Oh. And then just the smile and the light on their face that finally there was somebody who spoke their language and the impact that that had. Um, and I think there are just lots of stories like that. I've had middle school teachers who were the only Latina in the entire school. And she's like, all of the Hispanic students are coming to yes. me, not just students in the bilingual program, everybody. And so that has really taught me the importance of representing the experiences of our students, both in terms of our curriculum, as well as our language use, as well as in the teachers that we put in front of them. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the things that I've, I've always seen as I've been in many, many bilingual classrooms is the care that teachers have and the connections that they make and the way that they can truly stretch students to achieve and have high expectations. Mm -hmm. And I think to me, the power of what I've always seen in bilingual classrooms is that the teachers look at the kids as potential scientists and yeah. doctors and people or teachers. And it's, it's never from a deficit perspective. They're not looking, oh my God, oh, this poor child, you know, so much trouble and doesn't know English. And so this affirmative stance, I think, has been just really, really powerful. And I've just seen that over and over and over again. Yeah. That's a new movement. Well, it's not a new movement, but that's a, it's a different movement where before we would call kids limited or not proficient. But we would, now we say, like, what do they bring? What can they offer? They're already enriched in another language. How can we use mm -hmm. them? I, yep, still, I still remember working in New Orleans. It was my second year of teaching. And... There was a new Vietnamese student that came just in Vietnam and 
the, the counselor brought him over to my classroom. He wasn't my student at the time. And he said, oh, Mr. Tan, this is a new student from Vietnam. And I greeted him in Vietnamese and I said a few things. When he, when he came to me at the door, he, he was looking down and his eyes wouldn't even look up. He was just like looking down and scared. And I said, hi, you could see his eyes open up and look, he, he raised his head and as he was doing that, his eyes got bigger and bigger. And I was like, oh. and he was so excited to have someone and say, hey, you're okay. It's gonna be all yeah. right. You have someone yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes a huge difference. And I think that's just the beginning of doing things bilingually. Yes. Um, and then of course you can expand that to make that really formal in terms of a bilingual education program. But I think it starts right there um, when we're working with bilingual kids. Right. That's why I wanna, before we get to that, because that's the foundation, that's the core of your book. You wrote a book called Foundations for Multilingualism Education from Principles to Practice. Before we get to that, I'd love for you to talk about what do you share with teachers uh, as they are in your college program as you prepare them for working with language learners? What, do you, what are the main principles that you share with them? I'm not allowed to talk about my book yet, okay? Oh, you will. <laughs> um, well, I think the principles, the way that, that I tend to think about the teacher preparation piece, and we've done this through our research as well, is that one, you have to know your student. Yes. You need to know who your ELL is and or your bilingual learner is and what they bring to your classroom. So you can situate a child, not just in terms of their English proficiency, but also in terms of where they are in terms of their academic um, skills and experiences, as well as who they are and the personality, the things they love, the things that matter to them and their community and how they fit within their families and the communities. So that's where it starts. Um, then I think we talk a lot about, which is sometimes a little bit hard because a lot of practicing or teachers to be want to know a lot of strategies and methods. Um, but before you get there, you need to understand why you do these yes. methods, right? Why do you pick a particular strategy? So um, we talk about the really foundational knowledge about the role of language and culture in education. They need to really understand that. And then there's the strategies that come with that, right? And then you can connect those pieces um, between who your ELL is and where they are, or your bilingual learner, where they are, what you understand about the processes of learning another language and becoming part of another culture, and the curriculum that you can then begin to teach and match that up and scaffold up as opposed to lowering your expectations. Yes. And then the third thing that we tend to talk about is teacher's ability to advocate. So, you know, oftentimes in, in most school systems here in the United States, the bilingual learners are, are marginalized often through, through various practices. And so one of the things that our teachers need to be able to do is know how to advocate for better practices or resources. And so we talk a lot about, even if this is the standard curriculum that you get, it doesn't necessarily mean that you just kind of take it as is, but you need to really have the skills and the agency to make the changes that are necessary for your students. You, we talked about starting with just uh, allowing kids to use the home language, or allowing home language to be used in schools. So now let's talk about the book then. Let's talk about okay. how do we formalize it? And you said, that's just the beginning. We can do more. What, do, what are the principles then? 
we can do more. So the book is an interesting, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the starting point of that book, um, because it started actually with my, the seed for that book probably was planted in, um, when I interviewed for my position in Framingham in Massachusetts. And I was asked the question, what do you think is the best model to teach bilingual learners? Mm. And my answer at the time was, it depends. And I've said it, it depends forever. <laughs> there is no one best model yes. because our contexts are different. Our students are different. Our resources and communities are different. Mm. And so one of the things I try to do with the book is to look for what is a way of thinking of then about implementing a, a program for your bilingual learners that makes sense in your context, mm. but that's not just random right because there still needs to be a thoughtful way of thinking about that, that that program so when i say there's no best model doesn't mean that i believe it can do anything will work and so the book it was an attempt to say what is the way of thinking about your context your school and then to figure out what fits best in that context and so yeah. that's where the principles came from <laughs> and so the principle framework really starts with what i think is the core of everything which is educational equity we want to establish schools and systems where all learners right, have an opportunity to succeed right. and have access to the learning opportunities that, that we want them to, to afford for them. Right. And it shouldn't matter whether you're an English language learner or a bilingual learner or whether you are male or female, it does not matter. Everybody should have that. So right. educational equity is the foundation. Um, from that principle, you don't have, I think, three other principles, at least the way that I think about it. I'm sure you can come up with other principles, but these made sense to me. Right. One is related around culture. So I call that affirming identities. It's recognizing the students for the cultural beings, who they are, mm. um, and, and affirming those identities and not forcing students to let go of who they are, but really add on to who they are and affirming that. Um, the second principle is additive bilingualism. So in other words, we talked about linguistic resources that students are coming in with, that adding to those resources, there's no reason to deny those resources. In fact, it doesn't make any sense to deny those resources. Those resources are there, they're in, they're in children's heads. They, they draw on them for learning. And so the additive bilingualism says, let's just add Let's see this as a very dynamic process, but let's expand the linguistic repertoires um, as opposed to limiting them to just one. And then the third principle is one that really came out of my own experiences working with bilingual programs and working with schools with bilingual learners, where oftentimes bilingual learners were either very segregated yes. in programs, or even if it wasn't quote unquote, integrated classroom, the dynamics of the classrooms were not always equitable. And so the third principle is what I call the structuring for integration and integration truly meaning a context where different groups come together on an equal status basis. Um, you know, some people might call that inclusion. I call it integration because in my in back of my mind, and this is just my own upbringing, I think is that inclusion to me is more associated with accommodating for students with special needs. And so that's just a different tradition. Right. Um, but that's really what structuring for integration means. And it also then means that when we think about bilingual learners, even if you have a separate program, that ultimately it's a whole school responsibility. Oh, it doesn't yes. matter whether you are in a bilingual program or not. 
And so those principles you can align with issues of curriculum, issues of assessment, research questions, all of that can kind of come with those principles. So to me, that's kind of the framework. And so then I think you look at your own context and say, so how far can we push additive bilingualism, for example? So in some schools, you can implement a very strong two-way immersion or two-way bilingual education program where you have a program that goes K through 12, fully bilingual for both native Spanish speakers, let's say, and native English speakers, and everybody becomes you know, bilingual, biliterate. Sometimes that's, to me, that's what you would strive for. Everybody should come, become bilingual in the end. This day right. and age, not being multilingual is a real disadvantage, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one way that we can get there. But there's other ways we can get there. And to me, it's always been, there's no reason not to think about bilingual practices. Um, if you think, you know, well, we cannot do a bilingual program, so therefore we don't have to do bilingual practices. It's like, no, 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 no. Remember the principle. Additive bilingualism is always a principle. It's a principle in the mainstream classroom. Yeah. It's a principle in the ESL classroom. It's a principle in the bilingual education classroom. So that's kind of the framework behind the book. And then what I try to do is to really think about what practices are aligned with that. And the book is, is, is due for an update at this point. But um, so really thinking about practices from around the world. I think that's kind of my, my goal is to continue to collect practices so we can show that these principles can be, in fact, implemented yes. um, everywhere. You talked about the book is due for an update. What would you do to update it? I would take the second half of the book, which really lays out the principles framework. The first half of the book is foundations of bilingual education and bilingualism. And I think other people have done a really good job writing about that. But I think the principles framework and thinking through how that works itself out in different contexts. Yes. I think that's the strength of the book. And I think it's a real contribution. And so what I'd love to do is to revisit the principles from a wide range of contexts systematically yes. and, and, and provide multiple examples of what this can look like. Yes. So it can be both a research piece, but also very practical for people who are like, so what can I do in my classroom and have a tool for them to, to work with that? When you talked about the context, which is the taking context into consideration, mm. when I uh, get invited to collaborate and share with a school district, they always say, you work at an international school. You work at a very privileged uh, system. What can you teach mm. us? Right? What can you share with us? And I always, I always show them two images. I show them a Starbucks coffee and a, a McDonald's McCafe. And I say, today, I'm going to share with you my McCafe your job is to make a Starbucks out of the principles that I share with you. These are two different coffees, basically the same thing, but they just serve two different audiences. Mm -hmm. So with my audience, I'm going to share with them a McCafe, but with your audience, you need to share with them a Starbucks. So that's, mm -hmm. so that's how they think about it. Mm -hmm. That's how I think about what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when I, when I talk about these principles, I, I, I definitely emphasize that what this looks like will vary. Yes. But the principle doesn't change. Exactly. And so I, for me, it's kind of coming back and say, so here's an example out of this context, what it looks like, just to give you an idea. Now, what could it look like in your context? What could it look like in your classroom or in your school? Um, and so I think it's a great prompt 
for people to kind of begin to think about that. It's like, but it's the principle that holds in the end. So yeah, I can see that. Oh, I think this is the. Key. I think this is the where, where we can start talking about your book, your second update. Can you show us a few contexts of what bilingualism looks like then? So if you think about like additive bilingualism for a moment, right? As you say, we have to build on students' repertoires and, and principles. Well, we can think of that in the context of like the United States. And it's very kind of a little bit more um, accepted, I think, to say that when we have immigrant children coming to school, that supporting their native languages is really, really important and that we need to support them. So that's one context. Um, I'm actually writing an article right now. It's okay, but that's not the only context, right? So now extend this to now we are in Korea teaching English as a foreign language. That's right. Now, does the principle still hold? Yes. And so my, my, my argument is it does still hold. What it looks like is very different. Yes. So I may do very rich, what we call translanguaging right now in the classroom in, in let's say, New York. But in the Korean classroom, I may be a lot more targeted because I need to provide different kinds of opportunities for students to mm. have access to English. Mm. But it doesn't mean as a teacher, I cannot or should not use the student's native language. And I would still argue that, especially if we start connecting language and content learning, like is happening in some programs, so it would be your third context, right? Some of the content-based programs that we have in Latin America or, or in the, some of the European countries, once content is involved and you want students to learn and the language and the content, that native language becomes a really important conceptual mediator. So you want to be able to do both of those pieces. So that's like in one minute, three different contexts, right. but the principle is the same, but it looks different. Right. I love how you said the home language becomes a mediator of understanding. Definitely when mm -hmm. it's content. Yeah, it's, it's the thing to say that a student coming from China has already learned about photosynthesis. Photosynthesis doesn't change when you learn it in English. So mm -hmm. why are we only saying, uh, we're setting a kid up for failure when we're saying we're ignoring what they already know in the home language. Yes, and then sometimes worse, if this is a middle schooler talking about your, your teaching level and we say, we're gonna start you with the ABCs. Yes. Right. And so I think the, the, to me, the beauty of bilingual education is that you can take the students where they are cognitively. Right. And keep them moving. That's, that's the key. You can recognize you already know photosynthesis. So let me just teach you that word. I don't have to start with this is a pen. Yes. They will, they will. <laughs> right. But we do. But we do. And so I think you can really ramp up your expectations and really good. I have to say really good ESL teachers do that, too. It's just that having that bilingual tool as part of your strategies is that you can just do so much more. Because the content that students are learning becomes the context for them to use both their language to think critically, mm -hmm. but also to engage with the grade level expectations. So that's yep. so when you say uh, when we take middle schoolers and we take them in and say what this is a pen when they already know what a pen is, but they don't know how to say it in English. I feel like you're speaking to me because that's what I used to believe a while back. I would say, no, no, no. Why are you making the seventh grader learn photosynthesis and do a lab report when they can't even say where is the bathroom? And so until I, I read more articles and read more books, and I realized, oh, wait, you know what? PSYOP, 
oh, sheltered instruction. Oh, kids can actually learn content in content classes, yeah. even at the beginners. Yeah. Maybe that's actually the best context, the best setting for them to learn language. Yeah, at least it's a context. I do sometimes worry a little bit that we don't teach the kids the social language anymore by making it too academic. Sure. They also need to know the, all of that. They need mm -hmm. to understand the culture as, as well. So mm -hmm. to me, it's never an either or, um, but there's no reason to exclude them from that content. Yes. Yes. And particularly, again, in a bilingual education setting, there's absolutely no reason why you could not do both very effectively. Right. And that's where the equity comes in. If, if I am afraid that sometimes some people might use uh, the fact that students are beginners and say, until you are proficient at this level, then you can be part of the class. Well, that's really uh, talking about segregation right there. We're yep. warehousing kids. And that bar keeps going up and up and up until we say, once you get at this level, once you're a native English speaker, then you can join class. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. Yeah. I've always said a um, little bit tongue in cheek, but not really, is that the exiting and reclassification process is probably the worst thing we've ever, that we ever do to, to bilingual learners. Um, because it always is like, you can hear teachers talk, oh, we're celebrating graduation from the ESL program or graduation from the bilingual education program as though that that program didn't count as <laughs> a, a regular classroom. And now you somehow, you have now joined, you know, the real right. school. Right. And, and, and I, I completely understand the desire to celebrate accomplishment, yes. right? But at the same time, it's like, how can we do that in a way that recognizes that all the work that has been done in the ESL program or the bilingual education program is as valid as all of the other education has taken place right. at that point. It's just now another phase in their education, right. and that's all it is. Right. Um, but I, I always have, have a little bit of a, like, well, wait a minute. That's, that's the kind of the same idea. It's like, you know, till you cut out of the ESL program, now you're a real students. Like, no, no, they've been amazing people right before that. And the teachers in the program have done an amazing job um, up till that point. So that's why, like, if you think of it as a whole school approach, yes. it doesn't really matter. You just happen to now be taught by this teacher and not by this teacher. Right. Dr. Jose Medina said, we're not trying to transition kids out of any languages and not trying to transition them into English only, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh yes, here, use Spanish. And then when you're proficient, stop using Spanish, use English only. And uh, yeah. yeah. Can you talk about that whole school approach? You've talked about that several times. Now I think teachers would love to see, learn about that. Yeah, so I think in the past, you know, we always thought that the education of bilingual learners was kind of the, the responsibility of the ESL teacher or the bilingual education teacher. Yes. Um, and if you were lucky, you had your own classroom and you were stocked very well as a teacher. Um, there are plenty of stories of you're in the basement, you know, you don't have the resource, you're a traveling teacher. Um, but in, in a good case scenario, you have your own classroom and do all of those things. But really, that, that classroom was like the safety zone. So the minute students would leave your classroom and they walk into the school building, mm. everybody was kind of like, well, who are you? Right. right? And, and you could comment like um, if you were speaking, let's say, um, Arabic or, or Spanish with your peers, the people would look at you and say, why are you speaking Spanish? You shouldn't be speaking Spanish. And so the bilingual program was a little bit of a cocoon, if you will, and a safety zone, but the school was not. 
Yeah. And so the minute students also would leave the program, they would enter a place that was not friendly, that was not affirmative, and that did not value their bilingualism. And so one level of the whole school approach is recognizing that it's the entire school culture that yes. needs to support this. Okay. The other piece is that since students are moving, they're not just in one place, um, that all teachers need to understand what it means to work with bilingual learners and need to have a, a, at least some level of expertise to do that effectively. And in some cases, especially if you have a program where students transition out um, into a mainstream classroom, that mainstream classroom teacher now has the job of doing very sophisticated academic language development. Right. Because most of our bilingual learners at that point, they can, they'll do great in the classroom. They have the oral language skills, they have the basic write, reading and writing skills, but what they really now need is that, that stretch towards that really kind of school language as we, as we kind of talk about that. And that's a very sophisticated skill. That's a very sophisticated skill. So the whole school needs to have that expertise to do that collectively. It cannot just be in one, one teacher or in one program. Because we say that uh, kids, when they go to our um, language intensive classes, uh, mm -hmm. that's only a fraction of the day, but they spend mm -hmm. the majority of the time in their content classes. Mm -hmm. So, so the content teachers have just as responsible, just as much responsibility of really supporting language learners. Absolutely. So I like to think of that as, as kind of the whole school experience of yeah. both the student as well as their families. I think another piece of, of the integration is the relationship with, with the community and, and with families and, 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 and caregivers. Um, so it's the whole school experience that matters there. It's not just that one hour or that one portion of, of your school life. It, it should be when you walk into the school, you feel good about being there. You're being challenged in a way that you can be challenged and need to be challenged and, and, and be supported in ways and scaffolded in ways that you need. You're so you're talking about family connection. How can we support families and create, help them feel like they're part of the community then in a bilingual school? I think it starts with by actually listening to families and parents. Mm. As schools, sometimes we just do so much information given, you must do this, you must do that, that we forget to just talk to the parents and say, tell us who you are and what you need and how you think about education. Right. What kind of support makes sense to you? What kind of role can you play? Do you wish to play? Right. Um, so I would say you have to start with respecting the families for who they are and what they can do and recognize that being connected to schools may look very different depending on the culture. Um, and there's not just one way of being engaged as a parent. Yeah, there's many ways of being engaged and not just uh, mm -hmm. knowing English. Because they can still participate if they don't know how to speak English yet. Absolutely. Let's talk about um, the language and culture part, which is one of part of your framework. Why is that so important? And how do we do that? Why is it so important? Um, because I think a lot of things, if not everything that we do in schools happens through language. Yes. I mean, imagine schools without language. Um, and language being almost like the verb languaging, right? There's so much communication that's happening, not just through words, but also through images and media and things like that. So 
to me, language or languaging is, is kind of how we conduct business in schools. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, culture is important there because the way that we use language, the values that we have, the norms that we establish, the things that we say are legitimate and um, quote unquote useful is all kind of cultural. And so um, to me, in school as an institution is a cultural institution. It's a social practice. And so those two pieces are just kind of core to me in terms of what we do and how we do things in schools. Right. And partially because bilingual learners bring these other linguistic and, and cultural resources to that institution and that social practice, I think that intersection makes it just fascinating. Um, and very unique. And I think it's a place that we need to pay attention. Right. I think it's culture is another context where students can connect to, or mm. teachers can use that as a con as a context to learn content as well. And so uh, there's so much jumping off point off when they say, Oh, well, this is how we do this here. How yeah. do you do it in your culture? Mm-hmm. We're not going to only study uh, one culture. We're going to say, we're going to start maybe study one culture, but we're going to ask, how does it, how do you do it in the other cultures in your own? Mm-hmm. So it's affirming mm-hmm. that way. Absolutely. Uh, let's end with uh, talking about your experience with TESOL, TESOL International. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think is uh, the main thing that TESOL International really wants to, wants teachers to understand? <laughs> Um, so TESOL International is the largest professional organization, right, for teachers of English to speakers of other languages. I think we're all over the world. We have affiliates in, in many, many different countries. Um, I think the core of TESOL is professionalism. Right. In that in order to be an English teacher, you need to understand that that comes with a professional preparation, that that comes with professional behaviors. Right. Um, so I think much of the messaging is just because you are and happen to be, quote unquote, a native speaker, right. it does not make you a really good English teacher. Right. Um, doesn't mean you couldn't become a good English teacher, but so there's a preparation part um, that I think is really important as part of TESOL. Yes. And then the other part of that is that building that expertise comes both out of practice and yeah. people reflecting on that practice, but also comes out of formal research. Yes. And the collaboration between researchers and practitioners, I think is, is, is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, to me, those are kind of the, the two pieces that are, are very important as part of TESOL International um, as a, because it is a professional organization. And so the kinds of opportunities that they arrange for and provide for, for teachers. It's just amazing in terms of professional development, in terms of you know the convention and the ability to just exchange and be connected with people from all over the world and learning from one another uh, about how you do things. Um, so that's uh, an important function. In the international school world, we are starting to really see that uh, working with lang- language learners is a, is a very specific, requires very specific skill sets. Mm-hmm. It's not just, oh, anyone who has an extra free period, you, well, you can, since, since you speak English, why don't you come teach the language yep. learner? It's yep. like, no, you actually have to, there is certain uh, foundational understandings that you have to have to be able to work with language learners effectively. If mm-hmm. not, then you, uh, like I did, I, 
reproduce the practices that I, that I experience as an English learner, yeah. right? Like yeah. separation. And I mean, my teachers did the best they could with the best knowledge they knew until researchers came along and said, well, maybe we shouldn't just expect kids to only use English at school. Maybe there are other things we could do. And so that's, that's your role in, yeah. in supporting teachers. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And respect to the teachers too, in terms of what, what they, what they are learning through, through their own practices. I wouldn't discount that, but um I think it all is part of recognizing this, the professional expertise that goes into being a really good English teacher. Right, right. You find the research, we figure it out, and we try to implement it. And you help yeah. us well. well, that's why that collaboration is so important, because you don't want research always be disconnected from practice and vice versa. So I think that collaboration, there's a real power in that. Yes. Well, I have two final sets of questions. Um, before I get to travel like teaching, I want to do, uh, it's called the four chairs. And four chairs represent four different types of uh, people, stakeholders in the community. What would you tell parents about bilingual education? That's one chair. Another chair is what would you tell principals? Another one is what would you tell teachers? And the last one is what would you tell a bilingual student or a language learner? Okay. So for the parent, I would say allow your native language to be used and be celebrated. Don't be afraid to use it um, and support your child that way. To the principal, um, administrators often question the effectiveness of bilingual education. <laughs> I would say stop questioning. We have decades of research that shows that this can work. Your job as a principal is to build a team yes. that can implement a quality program. Right. Um, do your professional development. They need to know about bilingual learners too, yes. as part of their um, training. Bilingual teacher, um, assuming that they were prepared as bilingual teachers working in a bilingual program, I would say keep doing what you're doing. Um, yeah. The advocacy that, that bilingual teachers often take on is, is, is huge, but right. so important. Um, and trust, trust your, your knowledge, trust what works for your kids. And for the students, I would be say, be who you are. Yeah. Be who you are and don't let anybody else tell you differently. You're more than enough. Yes. More than enough. Exactly. My last set last questions, or so it's another set is traffic light teaching. It's the red light. What would you ask teachers to stop doing? Yellow light, what would you ask teachers to slow down enough to start questioning? And the last one is, what would you ask teachers to do more of? That's the green light. So I would love for teachers to stop thinking of bilingual learners as a problem. (laughs) And um, really move away from the deficit perspective of of bilingualism. The yellow light Um, I would encourage teachers to take a step back and think about the ways that they use language themselves and Mm. the opportunities that they create for language use in their classrooms for all students, but particularly for their bilingual learners. What's the quality of that space? Not just how much, but what's the quality of that space? And then one thing I would... If they didn't already do it, um, I would definitely say get to know your students. Right. Keep doing that. Keep expanding that. Um, 
and not just for the reason of building a connection and a relationship, which mm -hmm. I think is where you start, but then also to be able to leverage that relationship to have high expectations. Yes. Um, as, as, one of my colleagues at one point said, it's not enough to simply say, I love you as, as, as a student. You also need to teach them the content. Yes. So we want to do both of those pieces. We want to reach out and connect and build that relationship, but then also say we have high expectations for you. So I would encourage them to continue doing that. I know a lot of teachers already do. Well, that's a beautiful way to end the podcast. So thank you for your work in the field in leading us through your writing, through your uh, past positions, but also just for having this conversation and sharing with us. So thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. I invite you to rate this podcast and leave a comment. Each episode takes three to four hours to record and edit. So your comments make all the hours worth it. And your reviews will help educators like you find the podcast. Now, onto our recap. My key takeaway from Dr. DeYon's message is that we are all multilingual educators, even if we only know one language. No, we don't have to teach students in their home language if we only speak one language. However, we have to adopt the principles of multilingual education. These principles are, one, the belief that all languages have a valued place in schools. Two, language is essential to a student's identity. And three, multilingual students need to be integrated into every aspect of school instead of being tucked away in portable classrooms or closets that have been converted into classrooms. While I am a language specialist, I have much to learn from my multilingual colleagues. In the next episode, we'll have Dr. Sonia Soltero Join us to talk about how we can create a school-wide approach to supporting language learners. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.